UX Podcast Episode 277. Hello everybody, welcome to UX Podcast, coming to you from Stockholm, Sweden. We are your hosts, James Royal Lawson and Per Axbom. Balancing business, technology, people and society. With over 2 million downloads since 2015. And we have listeners in 200 countries and territories in the world, from Canada to Senegal. I love that we can say over 2 million downloads now. Is we finally passed that like magic number. There were lots of twos in that. 2 yeah. million downloads, 200 countries. Yeah. <laughs> of which we only mentioned two of them. <laughs> And we have a fantastic interview lined up for you. In this episode, we are joined by Natalie Nahai, who we have not talked to for many, many years. Yeah, we last talked to Natalie on the show back in 2014. and first talked to her in 2013. She made a little guest appearance on our 100th episode. But it's been way, way too long yeah. since we last talked to Natalie, who is always wonderful to talk to. So Natalie is oh, many things. She is, amongst other things, a songwriter. She's one of our few guests we've had on that actually does have songs on Spotify. Yeah. She's an author of multiple books now. She's an artist. In fact, she spent the three years studying fine art recently in, Bos- in um, Barcelona, Spain, um, which has been mind-blowing, interestingly, interesting to follow the development of, of, of that sidetrack that Natalie's... Um, followed she's a podcaster Her podcasting actually goes back pretty much as long as ours does yeah that's incredible um, actually yeah yeah and she's been a broadcaster she does regular speaking um run to run company and well has been known over the years as the web psychologist so so obviously a really truly inspirational polymath i mean is there nothing that she hasn't done yet. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And and uh, we should have asked her about hang gliding. We should have. <laughs> uh, and and we talked to her today a bit about her her new book, Business Unusual: Values, Uncertainty, and the Psychology of Brand Resilience. So, Natalie, how do you think that you've grown? Personally, after withstanding the um, adversity of the pandemic, apart from the extra inches around the waist, the personal growth in that respect, um, <laughs> I have been thinking a bit more about how to balance my time. I'm someone who does lots of different things, um, so that's been one of the aspects that I've been exploring. And also, um, I was thinking so about what, this the, this the, morning. the thing. You, yeah, on. the th- other things you've done. I mean, you you've been studying fine art. Yeah. Um, <laughs> for three years yeah. um, in Spain. Yeah, so so one of the challenges has been how to integrate um, what was currently, what was previously kind of held by this wonderful structure of uh, quite a stringent, intensive academic programme. So you're, you're drawing and painting from 10 in the morning till at least five at night, and then you've got extra time. How to integrate an artistic practice outside of the external structure and then into one's own life, which I've struggled with a bit, actually. I thought I'd find it easier. Um, so it's kind of that question of how do you bring in the creative practice when we're so geared towards being productive and busy in a way that, for instance, pays or 
contributes to a professional career. And then the other side, I think, as well, is um, making space for rest, which I hadn't really done much of, and, and creating a ritual in the mornings where I would sit with my partner on the sofa and read a book for 30, 40 minutes with my coffee, which, you know, usually I would never have done. And so I guess thinking about what are the things I need, how to balance the different elements in my life that I want to be there that give me a sense of richness and stability and the rest of it. Because yeah, you, you started your fine art course, that was that started before the pandemic. Yeah, it, it did. did it during. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was two weeks away from finishing the final project when oh. Barcelona, which is where I live, got completely locked down. And so you've got this gorgeous group of international students you've done. By then it was like three and a half years most of us had done together and there's a small group that were left standing at the end. And then they were like, right, well, that's it. You have to go. The school is shut. Um, so then there were last flights that people had to get. It was a very last minute thing. Lots of my friends fled to their countries. And then with just like two weeks to go on this massive painting with a live model, we had to shut mm. it all down. Um, so it was quite an abrupt and ambiguous ending to, to something which was actually a very important and joyful chapter. So it's kind of this ambiguous loss tied up in not being able to complete it fully, to say goodbye, to kind of you know, mark a new stage or chapter in one's life after it. Um, but um, yeah. all that time, though, because I've, I've watched you, um, your progress with the, the finite course and just that the amount of time you've got, you know, re- reflect upon things yeah. and <laughs> combined with the pandemic, it's, um, oh, it's, it's, a, it's very privileged to be of that much space and time to be that reflective. Yeah. So I think also, are you talking about more the lockdown kind of sort of the enforced well, reflection? I mean, I, uh, both, both of them, I think, mm. Natalie. Like, the, your, the amount of, when you're painting like that, like, it takes so much time and you have to reflect on it. But also the fact that you, during the pandemic, we were all forced to oh, be more reflective mm. and, and considerate of our values of what we, what we want to, where that balance is. Mm. And it's tricky, isn't it? Like, I know a lot of people during that sort of enforced, those early months, three to six months of enforced lockdown, a lot of people quite dramatically reassessed their lives and, you know, thought about how do I want to spend my time if I can't go out to work? Um, but I'm able to meet my rent and I've got my basic, uh, my basic things covered. So, you, you know, you've got your health care, you've got roof over your head, what's that, what have you. Um, <clears throat> it was a question of how do they best use the time in a way that is fulfilling and gives them a sense of maybe meaning and anchoring outside of the usual things that we would look to. Because if you can't go to work and you can't socialise and you can't gather and eat with loved ones, how do you structure your day? How do you create that quality of aliveness and engagement in the world when a lot of the things that we turn to for that are unavailable to us? Um, And so in that time, I was also thinking, you know, what can I do now? So I started with good intentions, Pilates every morning and all that. I'm not a gym person at all. I'm like the opposite of that. I'm going to do this for my back. It's going to be great. I'm going to do stretches. Within about two weeks, having gone through my entire wine cabinet and all of the chocolate in the house, which we'd pre sort of got in um, and then done some Pilates. I was like, oh, actually, this looks like it's going to be in for the long haul. And then it was a question of shit. How are we going to spend our time? Like, how do you structure your days so you're not just all over the shop without kind of a a sense of rhythm um, and I think that was probably something which a lot of people had to contend with certainly early on. So so was the pandemic then the instigator that brought the idea of writing the book or had you started on that thoughts about it already because all the things we're talking about with values and how people are changing and reflecting that's so much part of what your book is. Yeah yeah so I was it was kind of like the the, 
the strategic answer and then the existential answer. So the strategic answer was that I knew that at some point after I finished my course, I would start to, I would have to start thinking about writing a new book, mostly because the second edition of Webs of Influence had come out in 2017. And I kind of felt it was time, like professionally, I was like, right, I want to have something new to dig my teeth into and to speak about and teach. Um, so I'll think about that when I finish the art. And then on the more existential side, when it looked as though it was going to be dragging on and I started to see some of the implications of the ambient stress and anxiety and fear and uncertainty and tumult, I then was thinking, OK, well, if I'm going to use this time to put myself through writing a book, because for me, it's the book writing is actually quite an arduous process. It's afterwards that I get the wonderful payoff of talking about these things. But if I'm going to put myself through my paces to write the book, how can I use this opportunity to draw from the psychological research and behavioural science to, to write a book that's actually going to help people. Um, so it was, it was a question of, of that, really, of needing to do it and then wanting to do something that made even a small amount of difference as people try to build out of the crisis, to build resilience, to think about values and purpose in a more robust, structured, frameworked way. So you're giving kind of almost um, a way of navigating some of these deeper questions with robust methodologies with case studies for example so that it doesn't become this kind of amorphous blob of well yes I know I need to be purpose driven and values driven but what does that actually mean uh so it was it was kind of a combination of those two factors really well that's really impressive so it's like you already have the awareness that this pandemic would bring about this long-term change in behavior really that people would have to cope with yeah this is the question isn't it it's always a sense of you know, when you take the long view, if you look back through history and you think, what are the what are the repercussions of big crises, both in the short and longer term, when you look back through history in terms of immediate reaction, in terms of ripple effects that last 5, 10, 15 years, or the children of people who've been affected in a specific crisis. And I think if you take that view, which I, I did, um, you see time and again that when we're confronted with loss and a lot of people experienced you know, small T and big T traumas throughout this time. People lost loved ones. They lost work. Um, there's a loss of belonging in many cases. When when you're confronted with such threatening and difficult circumstances, you can either try and find ways to kind of anchor yourself in something deeper and find a way to move towards post-traumatic growth. Or it can be very easy if you don't have those sorts of tools and guidance to get stuck. And there are many different ways to bolster yourself, whether it's a, I don't know, a regular meeting with friends on Zoom and that becomes a source of comfort and solidarity, or it's a therapist or it's a personal practice. Um, but yeah, looking backwards, I was thinking, OK, well, once we were about a month in and we were looking at other countries and Italy in particular, which is obviously quite close to Spain, looking at how things are dragging out. I was like, right, this is not just going to be a quick, you know, two month thing and then you're you're back at work. It's going to be something that has much longer lasting effect so then what can we what deeper questions can we ask to help ourselves to build resilience um when when the long-term outcomes are going to be quite unpredictable and quite long mm. hence the long-term outcomes <laughs> yeah because <laughs> yeah, we how we, so what we what we value there and, and valuing um valuing a different balance um you mentioned in the book about how um in the millennials and Generation Z, uh, they're becoming different in the way in which they assess organisations they're going to they're going to work with. As yeah, they're taking they're accepting job decisions, the job offers now they're not quite 
going for the money in the same way as maybe they were. Right, exactly. Yeah, and that's a really interesting point. So there's, there's, it's always quite contentious when we talk about generations or when we generalise yeah. people into big groups of, of, of people. But what is interesting is that we are seeing shifts. And, you know, if you look at general trends, um, we know that, for instance, some research suggests that up to 40%, so nearly half of millennials, will accept one job offer over another due to a company's environmental credentials, even if it means taking a pay cut. So it's not just about, you know, the fancy corner office and the car and the promotion. It's, well, if I'm spending all this time at work, um, what is it doing for me? What is it doing for the world? How is it actually bettering the situation and not just lining my pockets? We also know, for instance, that 62% of Gen Z, so the younger cohort, who are now entering the workforce, prefer to buy from and work for sustainable brands. So it's not just about, you know, what is it that I can do to, to get ahead in my career? It's also, what am I doing that's meaningful contribution? And when we're talking about these, these young generations, especially if we're in older generations, so I'm at the very top end, the oldest end of, of millennial, we can think, well, you know, what's this got to do with us? But actually, within uh, seven years, so if we're thinking about this in, in the new year, like by 2029, uh, consumers who are born between 1981 and 2012 will make up 72% of the global workforce. That's the majority. Mm. And global yes, we, it's huge. Well. Yeah. yeah. And the thing is, huh. you can say, well, all right, well, the people making the decisions at the top are still going to be probably people who are older, who've got established track records. Well, that's fine. But they're also going to be having to deal with having to deal with pressures from younger employees, from getting the best talent, helping to retain the best talent. And if the people coming up are making greater demands on companies to stand up for um, social justice issues, for diversity, equity and inclusion considerations to make sure that, you know, that they're living in a, in a healthy environment that supports their well-being and gives them purpose as well as providing professional uh, possibility for growth. All of those elements have to be considered if we're thinking about flourishing businesses and what they need to do in order to build success and resilience in the long term. Mm. That also puts kind of a heavy weight on the consumers themselves and having to do all this research to really understand what companies are doing the right thing <coughs> based on what, how do I trust what they're saying. I guess there's a lot of virtual signaling going on because companies realize they need to do this. Yeah, and I think the tricky thing with virtue signaling is that there's obviously an implicit understanding, sometimes an explicit understanding from brands, that they they realise that people are demanding certain principles to be enacted, certain values to be upheld. And of course, the quick fix is to say, all right, well, this particular group is being very vocal about X, Y or Z, and we want to target this audience. So we're going to say that we uphold the values that they uh, care about. And yet, if you do that without having the infrastructure, the integrity, the track record to build that up and to prove that you're actually, um, you know, living those values from the inside out, then you risk creating all sorts of issues for yourself as a brand as you alienate people who feel that their values and trust have been violated when you fall short of meeting their expectations. So there's an interesting thing here, like if you're thinking about as a brand, first of all, if we're going to uphold certain values, how do we begin to have that conversation? Number one, you don't need to be all things to all people. We're all in the process of growth and development. Pick one thing that you really care about where you can actually move the needle. If you're a company that deals with, um, you know, logistics and you're shipping things around or you are moving things through fleets of vehicles, go electric. Maybe that's the thing that's going to give you the greatest opportunity to enact those values. Um, and then more broadly, if we're thinking about 
as a consumer evaluating how much a brand is virtue signaling versus you know really living their values or if you're a business leader and increasingly this is happening from the very top down if you're a business leader or an executive and you're thinking how do we assess how we're doing according to these values then one of the frameworks that i think is super useful is what i call the four c's frameworks for establishing integrity and evaluating it and broadly speaking this means making a public explicit commitment to the principles or values that you hold dear it then means being congruent in word and action so walking the talk mm. it then means being consistent over time so building that visible evidence based track record so when people look at your actions over the last few years they can say yeah this person's clearly walking the talk and doing it consistently and finally being coherent in intention and behavior so doing the right things for the right reasons and not just because suddenly there's social pressure for you to do certain things or you're legally compelled to or whatever pressures might be coming from shareholders it's it's quite a useful framework so commitment congruence consistency and coherence and if you start to do that and consumers demand that of their brands eventually the brands will do that for the consumers and say well actually these are the values we stand for this is what we're doing to make sure that we're getting it right here's the evidence we make it easier for you so you don't have to look and do the hard work so seeing thinking about some of the shifts in behavior or even attitudes or value adjustments that we've we've seen uh, have been surfaced anyway by the pandemic mm. um like i know this that whole thing of seeing what's around you and being at home and then visiting local shops mm. because you've realized you treasure the local cafe or the restaurant and then i'm going there and making making a point of, of visiting it whereas maybe before i'd be a bit Blase, or mm. I think, oh, we know, it's t almost too convenient because it's <laughs> next door. Yeah, I think you really point out a really interesting trend, which is the fact that we've become more conscious and deliberate in our consumption patterns. So, for instance, one of the trends that I write about in the book was the fact that people have predicted that, especially younger cohorts that were more financially squeezed, many had predicted that they'd end up making consumer choices that were basically cheaper so they didn't have to spend as much money. We actually found the reverse in the majority of cases. And so to your point about, you know, how do we change or how have we changed consumer behaviors in the main during the pandemic? In Barcelona where I live, a lot of my friends were buying organic food from Lidl's because it's cheaper, it's aligned with their values in as much as they're buying organic. And during the pandemic when it's sort of really started to take you you started to see shops shutting down and people taking a hit most if not all of my friends transformed their shopping behaviors they said okay we are going to intentionally choose not to go to little or the big supermarkets we're going to instead we're going to go and support our local shops many of them became vegan or moved towards a more plant based diet and it was really the sense of you know if we're looking out for other people and we want to make sure that we're supporting those around us to flourish during very difficult times what can we do to make a difference and so these behaviors which i think started out initially from a place of um compassion from a place of wanting to be explicit about one's values and to prioritize certain things a lot of these behaviors have since stuck and so you know i don't buy from supermarkets for for much of my stuff most of the the <clears throat> the purchases that i make are literally within like a two block radius with tiny independent shops yeah i'll go to the the market to get a crunchy bar or something like this um or maltesers <laughs> but mostly speaking you know and then you develop relationships with people in these small shops and but it's so interesting as well that you mention um well two products there that <laughs> you connect to presumably your your childhood oh, yeah. to your to your your 
pre-expat life living in the UK. <laughs> so, so I mean, you write in the book about um, you know messaging to do with um, nostalgia oh, yeah. and and tradition and, and heritage, mm. which, is, which ties in nicely to that. And mm. I think. I think with the pandemic, we've, we've <coughs> lifted more of those feelings that, you know, you've, you think, of, oh, well, I don't want to lose the little local shop because it feels nostalgic. It feels like a heritage thing having yeah. a bakery here or being able to buy these products from, you, from your youth. Um, yeah. yeah. So, so that local thinking that we've become more, more local and um, nostalgic, I guess. Yeah. And it's interesting when you dig into the research, you find that typically when people go through hardship, there does seem to be a desire for more nostalgic, comforting um, products, services, even things like uh, packaging design, for instance. Mm. So there's there's this sense of, you know, what is it that you find joy in? What is it that you find uh, a sense of connection with perhaps more innocent or happy times? And of course, many of us will forget, unless it's a traumatic experience, many of us will forget the kind of more humdrum, boring or miserable everyday aspects of childhood, of which I'm sure there are many. Um, and we look back with this kind of Pollyanna, it's called the Pollyanna principle. We look back through rose tinted glasses and imagine the things or remember the things that we experienced then in a much more positive light. So it's kind of, you know, from a perspective of services and products, that's one of the things that you see brands do during times of stress and uncertainty to get people to connect back in with that pleasurable sense of, well, this reminds me when I was happy and I don't know, buying sweets with my with my auntie or my grandparents when I was a kid and you know, spending time away from home, away from the parents and I could eat whatever I wanted. At least that's for me. It's kind of like chocolate, go. Exactly. Oh, I'm thinking yeah. chocolate. I'm <laughs> theme. Yes, there is most definitely a theme. Apparently, oh, I mean, yeah, going back and filling your suitcase full of like, you know, chocolate bars and, and various sweets and things is a normal occurrence. Yeah. That's definitely my family. But I mean, yeah, it's like half jokingly and, and, and definitely politically. I mean, this makes me also think about how if you really, really had to do, or you knew you were going to do a pandemic and Brexit, mm. that the way that in which heritage and tradition and the kind of the, the loca- being more local comes into play, then you kind of want to do um, Brexit after pandemic. Because <laughs> you value the local because- more. Yeah, and mm. and the and the way that there's kind of the branding that is needed, or the the changes that is necessary, if you're going to make a success of it, because it's already decided it's going to be done, then then you're going to maybe be more resilient to that or cope with that step, that move in your world better, because mm. you are longing for the heritage. Mm. You know, you see all the there's so many British flags on everything going back to the UK just mm. now, I and mean, everything's UK. Wow. I mean, it's it's more there's more UK flags than anything than I've seen for a long time. It feels like, hmm. um, and I, I guess that's that is a combination of the pandemic and Brexit. Even though it has been pandemic, uh, well, pandemic yeah. second. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one. I have so many mixed feelings about this as a as a Brit who's chosen to live in Europe, and also most of my family are from Europe. I think you make a really fascinating inquiry that that question of, you know, what are the things that enable a transition to go as well as it can, given that the political decision has been made. So thinking about going local, thinking about empowering communities, farmers to make sure that they are resilient, that you are buying food that supports not just, you know, your your local neck of the woods, but the whole country. If we look at things like the way in which we deal with food in the UK, the vast majority, I don't know how high it is, it's in the 90s, I believe, uh, percents like, of food coming in is from outside obviously it's coming in from outside so we're, we're extraordinarily dependent on imports for fuel for uh, well obviously less shelter but for fuel for technology for the food that we eat for the talent that we bring in especially if you thinking about the major cities in the uk 
And so given that we're so heavily reliant on external aid, help, transaction, etc., maybe indeed it's a good time if we're thinking about well, what can we do to actually make the most of a situation, which I actually found quite heartbreaking because I feel very European and I don't like the idea of mm. just having, I want the English flag and the European flag. I'm not really, really a flaggy kind of person, but, you know, I like the idea of being able to kind of transact and hop across and have more of a sense oh, of a yeah. network of relationships. Mm. Um, you know, and of course that will come in a different way. But yes, I think it's an opportunity to think, given the circumstances, how can we change our systems and build local resilience, whether it's from you know, an energy perspective, a food perspective, a social perspective, create a greater sense of integration with the people who are around us to bridge difference, to make sure that we're not kind of retreating into this othering of you know, mm. us versus them. And then we pick whatever we want to pick, whether it's I don't know, any kind of identity politic that we want to pick on. Um, yeah, to make sure that we're getting the best out of a quite challenging situation. Mm. So there's something I, I, I want to ask you uh, that I want to get on to. Uh, this, towards the end of the book, uh, you mention this difference between virtual and in-person interactions, which obviously aren't functionally equivalent. Uh, for me, when I, when I read this chapter, it was so fascinating to me, to, the realization that we're so focused now on talking about hybrid and the physical versus the virtual, whereas that's all we've been doing in UX really mm. For many many years in that we've moved physical spaces like shops in online but we don't talk about the hybrid experience enough we don't talk about how one relates to the other uh, so so uh, speak a bit about how we benefit uh, from one or the other uh, and this hybrid experience that we all have to deal with right now mm. it's yeah it's it's a tricky one because as you say, people have been talking suddenly now about remote work and hybrid work. People have been working remotely since they were able to go on Facebook, like 2012, even before then, as soon as it was possible, a lot of people were doing it. Many of my friends have been freelance for many years. And, you know, this is not new to them. It's just new to the bulk of the population who were previously demanded to be in presence in a physical office. Um, okay, so some of, the, some of the good things about virtually mediated work and uh, communication... One of the things I think is really interesting is that it has the potential to democratize gatherings. So, for instance, if you're thinking about people who need to be present in a boardroom uh, and one of my relatives is talking about this at a bank where they work. Previously, it was only a certain number of people that could fit physically in the room around the table. So it was only the execs that would get in there. The problem is that then they would have to, in their own time, relay to their managers of the teams and then those managers would have to relay to their um, subordinates what it was that had happened in the meeting, what the most important elements were, what they needed to do in terms of action. And so, of course, when the pandemic hit and people had to migrate online, suddenly you could still have, obviously, this core group of people making the main decisions, but you could also open it up where appropriate to a whole host of people who are relevant to the conversation to listen in, to absorb, to give feedback um, in a curated way. So that then suddenly all the company was on the same page and people were working much more harmoniously together. <laughs> It also means that if you've got people who are perhaps a little shyer or they're less extroverted, then, you know, if you've got and also for people who don't enjoy or find easy the maintenance of eye contact, for instance, having something where you have boxes on screens with people's heads and they're smaller, it can also be quite democratizing in the sense that you then have a different way of relating to people because you're not in a specific corner of the room. You don't have to raise your voice to be heard. You can just raise your hand. So it's all of these elements that enable us, if we use these tools in an intentional way, to create more space for a richer conversation from a greater number of people. 
On the flip side, um, beyond those things, you know, as we're talking here, I can see your faces. I can't see your hands unless I move them up around my face. Uh, so we're missing out on a lot of gestural and nonverbal cues, which are very important for implicitly understanding someone's emotional content, their state, how they feel about things. We also don't move from our desks in most instances to take one type of meeting or watch a particular documentary or whatever it might be to the next. So we've got this situation where you've got this kind of setup where you're not physically having to move despite the variety of tasks that we engage in from that location. So it can bleed together. So whether I'm writing a book, doing a podcast, watching Netflix, talking with you, doing research for a product I want to buy, whatever it is, it all happens in the same space. And we know from research in therapeutic context, for instance, that just the act of physically moving from wherever you, you are to begin with to the location where you go and visit your psychotherapist, that act of physically moving through space and then being in a contained space dedicated to particular kind of relational work has a huge positive impact on the processing of that work, on how you feel, on the memorability of the experience that you have. And this also translates to, you know, moments for serendipity in a building. There's a difference between the roomies and the zoomies, as one of my interviewees talked about it. You know, if you're physically present a certain number of days a week and you are shaking hands and you do have those water cooler moments or you share a beer after work or you go for lunch, it creates um, a rich and spontaneous quality to the nature of our relationships that is very hard to reproduce online. And so I think there's also the question of how do you cultivate culture, belonging, interpersonal warmth, a sense of spontaneity when we are starting relationships online where it's harder to build trust? How can you intentionally build back in some of these elements so that we're not missing out as much when working purely from a remote fashion? Well, I think I'm, I'm going to use this word now, which I don't really want to use, but I'm going to use it anyway. But with with the way we're talking about metaverse now and <laughs> virtual reality, that is there, do we have an opportunity or space for virtual office spaces to partly solve that issue or, and succeed? You know, hybrid, hybrid virtual reality, not just hybrid digital physical. Yeah, so that that's that's a whole world that's super interesting. I mean, I think. There's a couple of things that spring immediately to my mind. One of them is that if you are, first of all, lucky enough to get a headset, so you've got the hardware consideration to, to pull in. If you're lucky enough to get a headset and you are wanting to physically move through space in order to have a more immersive experience, which I would suggest is perhaps the most resonant for people, emotionally it's going to be the most engaging. You also have to think about what are the physical spaces in which people are having these virtual experiences. So if I'm in a tiny flat share with friends, say I'm a young person, I'm starting out my career, how uh, reasonable is it to expect a young person to find a physical space to move around in? I know it sounds like silly, but it does make a difference. And then furthermore, we rely on so much more than our visual and auditory senses to inform our experience of one another, of the world. All of these haptic cues, the, the sense of the air on our skin, the sense that we're surrounded with in terms of what we can smell and what we can touch. We know from the research, for instance, that when you look at virtual versus physically real environments, having something in a virtual environment which you could visually potentially imagine yourself reaching out and touching, it's not encoded or experienced in the same way in the brain as a real physical object that you could physically reach out and touch. And so there's also this consideration of how much does the virtual reality that we move around in from an audio and visual perspective, how much richer is that experience than a flat screen? Maybe it's not that much. And how does it differ from 
our physical environment of actually being able to engage with the objects, people, environments around us. And they're not comparable experiences. I mean, they can be wonderful as an adjunct to, uh, you know, the screens that we use and what have you. And great if you're trying to create a more immersive experience with colleagues around the world. But I don't believe that there will ever be a replacement for real physical in-presence experiences unless or until they're able to completely re like I guess reinvent or reproduce aspects of you know mm. our lived experience and that might just be you know neural interfaces in the brain that allow you to have the experience of being in a fully immersive environment without actually having to have headsets and but who knows I don't want to be around for that I hate the idea of that <laughs> no, sounds awful uh, yeah, <laughs> to me I'm a total luddite yeah, you've got all this. Yeah, the whole thing, like you said, about hooking hooking memories or building memories based mm. on the full range of your senses. Mm. And I know, I know that I felt sometimes now when you're staring at the screen that you can't distinguish between that meeting, that meeting, that meeting, that meeting, that because they're effectively all the same boxes. Especially if you have a lot of overlapping mm. people that are in your meetings, mm. then you've lost all those mental. Mm hooks so your memories don't land yes. in the back of your brain <laughs> in the right boxes because they haven't had all the things they need to send them on the right way yeah so, so, so maybe virtual reality could help even if you're sat seated mm. maybe it could help by giving you different spaces creative spaces to work in mm. mm-hmm. to allow your brain to process it differentially in a differentiated way yeah. to all the other things that are coming Maybe. I don't Absolutely. know. But you're right. I'm hoping it's I'm hoping it's something quite innocent than th- like that rather than strange days plugged in straight into your cere- cerebral cortex. Yeah, don't get me wrong, like I love, you know, one of my favourite, favourite shows growing up was Star Trek. And I love the episodes when they go in the holodeck and you get to walk around. But again, it's an immer- it's basically what Punch Drunk does. It's an immersive theatrical experience where you're not losing somehow with that technology, you're not suddenly losing most of your senses in the service of audiovisual input you, you've got everything reproduced so it's like if we can do that then great i just it's, it's just the in-between stuff that i'm less excited by um but of course yes i think it has the potential to to at least resolve some of the challenges that we face currently so we really are identifying ux problems to be solved yeah <laughs> as the world really becomes more complex yeah. well we covered a lot of topics there in that short span of time thank you so much natalie my this pleasure it's been it's been a treat as always speaking with you both As I said in the intro, um, it, it's always really good fun talking to Natalie. And she, she's just so knowledgeable about so many different um, topics. Um, and you can get into the psychology side of things on any of these topics. And, um, and we do. And oh, we opened up so many little um, rabbit holes there that you could spend an entire episode diving into right and you just want to spend more time exploring and understanding things uh so so it's a real you, you start with this episode and you can go continue on into a hundred different topics if you feel like it yeah one one topic that we've we discussed a fair bit in the interview um that i think we can talk a little bit more about is the um the the ability to work from home now which um has has, has come um, very quickly as a result of the the pandemic and and how much the ability to, to thrive in that environment is connected to personality there's some people's personalities that are more suited to that and that way of working and some people's personalities that as natalie said in the interview would would need more physical meeting with people 
Um, I was wondering, I was thinking back to uh, things you've read and learned about how personalities formed. And uh, I might get some of these figures wrong, or might be slightly slightly inaccurate, but roughly. They, they, I think I've read research where half of your personality is genetic, and half of your personality you develop oh, as you're growing up. Or it likely um, varies from individual to individual, I of guess. Course it, of course yeah. it will do. But... Um, but then I think I think it's by um, end of your twenties that's when your personality becomes basically fixed. And I started to just think and reflect on what Natalie said about Generation um, Z and millennials um, and how big a group of the working population they're going to be within the next seven years, and the the, the way that we're dealing with this shift of going online. Mm. And you know they're taking the opportunity to find a new balance in hybrid working between remote and an office, and how quickly we can cope with adjusting. And I wonder, is that going to be like not maybe much of an issue for the 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 younger people starting out in work now? Well, mostly because they can adapt. It's like, it, that's what you're saying, isn't it? Yeah, they've got whereas, capacity left whereas, in their personality change. They've got room to change yeah. in their personality still because they're still young enough. Right, and and you and I, it still it will work for because we're we're people who like to adapt and change our behavior and and are curious and want to try things out. But and we've uh, spent a lot of time working remotely anyway due to the self-employed nature, I think, of what. Yeah, perhaps done. exactly. Yeah. Uh, but then. That means that there is a like a population where people have been adapting to working on location for many many years and commuting, and that's part of sort of built into their body. They, that's how it grown, works. Yeah, they've grown up with it yeah. from 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 birth. Effectively, mm. they've been in a culture where it's expected that you will end up working, and the workplace will be somewhere you go to for the vast majority of people I guess I don't like using majority there but for most people have been going to an office if they're employed um, right. and yeah and suddenly and that's been set into our personalities is my, my thinking there and mm. that does mean that we have to adjust and find a new balance because our personalities haven't been raised to cope with that mm. new way of working this does make me reflect on how Things are changing so much with the technological revolution, uh, and we're always talking about the next version of things. So now we're moving from working physically to working online, and we're seeing this. Everybody's talking about this future world where we have virtual 3D office spaces. Uh, but the reality, of course, is that we'll have, as you as you said already, we will have hybrids, mm. and it it seems that we're increasing the number of possible hybrid variants all the time. Because different companies will have different maturities around these issues, and some people want to be go fully remote, some will have uh, partial, and those partial versions will be so many different ones. So we're so we're not we're, we're actually making the world more complex. Mm. Because and moving from one workplace to another will mean that I will have to shift the way I the, the time I spend on location, perhaps. Mm. Uh, then this is all again about first that are thirty plus then. You know, we might struggle with this more because it's not something we've done, mm. and and that and our capacities to to or I could maybe say that our balance will be different. Yeah, and how we accommodate other 
groups with other needs and balances. It's another, it's another thing we're going to have to be inclusive about, isn't it? Exactly. We have to allow for different uh, wishes mm. of ways of working. Mm. And it's kind of maybe, oh, I suppose the thing where you've got like, um, maybe someone in the organization will say, no, 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 I want all my team to work on site. Mm. Which, I mean, that might be something that is reassuring for them. I think you, you, you mentioned the whole thing, you're worried about the youngsters. Yeah, I, I, I made a joke about, oh my God, they're going to be online all the time and they'll, they'll, not, have to, they'll not get to experience this wonderful <laughs> experience of, I mean, being face-to-face. -face. I mean, so that feels so important to me just that from a biological perspective. Mm. And then we realized, well, maybe that's just because I'm old. But it's, uh, yeah, you're, <laughs> you're being nostalgic yeah. for something that they've never had. Yeah. Potentially. So we're into the psychology of that as well. Exactly. Um, you're grieving. You're grieving for someone else who never on their behalf, the loss. For, and they're for, not even. Yeah. Yeah. They don't even see it as a problem. <laughs> <laughs> Potentially, yeah. It's um, no, it's it's an exciting um, change that we're going into now, and I think, like Natalie writes in the book, that um, you know, do we can we ch take the chance to find a new balance and seize this um, moment to do something better. Yeah, and and with this increased complexity that we're seeing, I think that there are a lot of topics covered in the book around uh, values and self-determination and personal growth that are really important to addressing all these different challenges. And I suppose it's quite a good and relevant podcast to listen to after this would be our chat back in episode 255 with um, uh, Margot Bloomstein. Oh, yeah. Trustworthy. Perfect pairing. Yeah. As um, Margot in her book focuses the entire book on the, the brand, um, trustworthiness of brands and communication of branding. Yeah. Go and listen to that one if you haven't already. And if you can spare a little bit of your time, then join our small community of volunteers. We're always looking for help with transcripts, publishing, and links for our show, nit, show notes. Show nits. <laughs> show, yes, nits. show nits. And the show notes for this episode, of course, are on our website. Lots of links. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. I don't the other side is a joke. So speaking of hybrid working, James, what do prisoners use to call each other? I don't know, Poe. What do prisoners use to call each other? Cell phones. Oh. <laughs>